I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Avik Bhattacharya, was the chief economist and is now the interim director of the Social Market Foundation, a nonpartisan think tank based in the UK, which aims to promote evidence-based policy and cross-party cooperation in politics. Prior positions include senior policy analyst at the Institute of Alcohol Studies, researching and advocating for policies to reduce alcohol-related harm. With interests in philosophy, politics, and economics, he earned his PhD in social policy from the London School of Economics. Avik is co-editor of the book, Political Philosophy in a Pandemic, Roots to a More Just Future. Today's interview focuses on an essay he recently wrote for the Social Market Foundation entitled, Social Mobility and Its Critics, published in July of 2023. So Avik, welcome to Delving In. Thanks for having me. So before we launch into the, into the ideas, tell us a bit about your background and also about the Social Market Foundation. So in terms of my background, I have long had an interest. I studied philosophy at university. I co-edited that book, as you mentioned, contributed to blogs around philosophy, and have always been interested in the intersection of philosophy and public policy and politics and trying to get at the underlying values that kind of animate our political divides. The Social Market Foundation, as you described, works uh, to promote evidence-based policies in a non-partisan way to our policymakers here in the UK, working across a wide range of policy areas. Uh, so that might be education policy, it might be uh, environmental transition, it might be criminal justice. And often a lot of that is trying to understand what's happening on the ground, analysing data, getting the facts and figures, but really a kind of underestimated uh, contribution that I think organisations like us can make is to understand what are the values and principles and ideological concepts. Ideology is sometimes used as a pure negative, as a bad word, but ultimately we have to make value judgments about which states of affairs we want to bring about, how we want to respond to those facts and figures and evidence. The evidence very rarely speaks for itself, but brings out choices about which principles and which norms we want to follow. It's an amazingly important type of thing to do. We live in such a polarized time, and this is, it sounds like an organization that can maybe help bring people together or at least to lower the temperature so that people can discuss things. That's certainly what we try to do, try to speak to people across the political spectrum, understand where there is common ground, and also not to sugarcoat where there are genuine divisions, but to highlight what it is actually that we're disagreeing about, and trying to encourage people to be pragmatic and evidence-based rather than mudslinging and name-calling, which is all too common, unfortunately, in politics. And not terribly helpful. So I was searching for a guest to uh, speak to the conceptual, ethical, and practical complexities of social mobility and equality of, of opportunity. And I was scouring the internet and looking at YouTube and the books, and, and I came across your, your article, and I was just really delighted uh, about that, that essay. And at, at first glance, the concept seems straightforward and commonsensical, but it, as soon as interventions are proposed to promote these things, then the polarization and rancor sets in. Let's take the, the step by step and try to see where the consensus breaks down, which policy options match which economic philosophies, and finally, your proposals for possibly adjusting the shared societal goals for maximizing fairness and fulfillment for as many citizens as reasonably possible. Now, I don't know that's a lot. I'm not expecting you to answer all that at once. So we're going <laughs> to go step by step. First, what are the areas of agreement 
regarding the definition and the statistics of social mobility? So conceptually, I think social mobility, it can be measured in different ways, but fundamentally what we are trying to track is we're trying to track how many people from a relatively disadvantaged position reach a position of advantage. And usually the kind of simplest way of doing this is to look at how much money people make. So how many poor people end up being rich, how many rich people conversely end up being poor. And often a neglected element of social mobility is downward social mobility as as well as upward social mobility. So one very kind of standard statistic that is used to, to track social mobility is to look at what percentage of people in the bottom quintile, in the bottom 20% by income or by wealth, end up in the top 20% by income or by wealth. But you could cut the data in many different ways. And I think often that's the metric that we use because it's statistically more straightforward. Whereas what we might care about, we can, sometimes this is analysed by occupational class. So how many people whose parents uh, grew up in manual occupations ended up doing white-collar professional occupations. We can look, for example, there are analyses that are done looking at certain elite professions. So how many uh, top politicians, how many people in the media, how many people in the arts or in the sports came from relatively disadvantaged backgrounds, from certain educational backgrounds or income or class. So the way that we measure, I think the concept is, is pretty clear. I think we know what we're talking about when we're talking about social mobility, or certainly that's relative social mobility. We can perhaps make the distinction between that and absolute social mobility, which which, is, which are sometimes run together in, in a second. But usually when we're talking about social mobility, that's the broad thing. It is, can someone come from a disadvantaged background and reach a position of advantage? And conversely, are people from advantage likely to fall down the social spectrum or the economic spectrum. And I would think this broad agreement that completely fixed social mobility or zero social mobility would be a bad thing. But there's probably less agreement about what level of social mobility is desirable. You certainly wouldn't want it to be so much mobility that it's just random, like what the, the next thing that happens to any particular person, you just roll the dice. That would be ridiculous too. How do you decide what's good? And I know that there are studies that compare different countries and show that, for instance, the the US and the UK have relatively low social mobility compared to other countries. How do you decide what's optimal? So so there's there's quite a handy benchmark. If we take the kind of standard metric of of dispersal from from income quintiles, you might think that if 20% of people from the bottom 20% reach the top 20%, if you, if you follow what I'm saying, if essentially you're equally likely to make it to the top or, the, or to be to remain in the bottom from the bottom, and if you're likely to be equally likely to be to remain in the top or to fall down to the bottom from the top, then that might be that's what's sometimes called perfect social mobility. Essentially, the circumstances in which you grow up have no predictive value of where you end up. And I think for many people, this is quite an attractive ideal because I think, Certainly rhetorically, we're quite committed to the idea that it shouldn't matter who your parents are. It shouldn't matter where you grew up. It shouldn't matter what which silver spoon or what advantages you had in your life. You should be equally able. Everyone should start from the same position in the race in life. Nobody should be any more or less likely to win. And so that creates a kind of natural benchmark 
albeit one that I, I don't think any society in, in history has achieved, although ones that may be more and more committed to the ideal of social mobility, like the UK and the US, are probably worse on than, than many peer countries. So I like to use an analogy of a basketball game, not in the usual kind of game, but what we call 21 in this country, in the United States. So it's just basically foul shots and then uh, layups from wherever the ball lands. And you can imagine, let's say it's a foul shot uh, contest, but the way the rules are set up is that every time you get the, the ball on the basket, you get to move up a step. And every time you miss it, you get to move back a step. And so eventually the people who are most able, to, at the beginning at least, get more and more advantage so that finally at the end, maybe you're right under the basket and maybe you get even more advantage, get the basket to be lowered by a foot <laughs> each time. So that by the end, you're just plunking the basketball into the basket, whereas people who are less able, at least at the beginning, might be all the way at the other end of the court. Yeah, so if we extend that analogy, let's take a group of people, let's take 100 people, and we start them from random positions. So some people will be starting right under the basket. Obviously, that doesn't work with free throws, but you, you get what I'm saying. And some people start from the back end of the court. If you play the game for long enough, the people will sort themselves naturally, right? In terms of it doesn't matter if you, if you put the NBA players at the back of the court, by the end of the game, they'll have worked their way right to the front. And conversely, if you put me in the game, even if I start right under the hoop, I'll be right at the back of the court by the end by the end of the game if you play it for long enough. And so that's the sort of society, that's a society of perfect social mobility, because your starting position is completely uncorrelated to where you end up. And, and that would be a perfect uh, meritocracy, right? So the people who are most able, their, their abilities would win out in the end. And it's fair, quote unquote, because the people who deserve it, quote unquote, <laughs> are the ones who are going to be reaping the benefits. Yes. So, so you brought in meritocracy, which is closely allied, but not identical to social mobility. So the key assumption that you have to make to assume that social mobility and meritocracy are the same is that you have to assume that your starting position in life has no association with your quote unquote merit. And we can cash out what we mean by merit. And look, this can get a little bit uncomfortable, but it's worth explicating it because the a kind of natural place to start here is to talk about genetic endowments. So do we think that genetic endowments are identical across the social spectrum? Or do we think that, for example, people who grew up with more academically able parents who maybe are more economically advantaged are more likely to be academically able themselves? And even if you believe that there's no correlation between your parents' economic situation or social situation and academic ability, then as soon as we start thinking about the ways in which advantaged parents might raise their children in different ways, if you grow up in poverty, you might grow up in more chaotic circumstances and circumstances that uh, limit your ability to develop certain character traits or attributes. So we might think about patience, we might think about resolve and determination, which because if you grow up in a circumstance where those things are not rewarded, and conversely, if you grow up in an advantaged household where you're trained in a lot of the skills that are rewarded in our society and our economy from the start, from the get-go, then that assumption that the most meritorious people are found randomly scattered across society breaks down and, mer and meritocracy might, a meritocratic society might not be, might not be perfectly socially mobile. 
Yeah, just to amplify what you're saying, I know there have been studies that show that parents of a middle-class background read to their children more, they speak to their children more, they, they say about twice as many words as, as parents from a poor background do, and when, when they do speak, it's more of a conversation rather than a commands. So there's really profound differences subculturally between the two groups, statistically speaking. I think one thing that you wrote early in your essay is that take social mobility seriously and it turns out to be extremely demanding. And I think what we're getting at here is how do you equalize the playing field without having to kind of deliberately change how parents parent their children? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right, the kind of paradigmatic example, the famous thing is, is the bedtime stories, is if you're an egalitarian parent, if you think that every child should have an equal opportunity to make the most of their skills, that nobody should get a leg up, then should you feel guilty about helping your kids with their homework? Should you feel guilty about reading them bedtime stories? Should you feel like you're doing something wrong by the, in the way that by speaking to your kids in a way that less advantaged kids might not be spoken to, to develop their critical faculties, to develop their reasoning ability, develop their vocabulary. All of these things are ways in which people from advantaged backgrounds end up in a getting a head start in the social and economic races that we're measuring when we're looking at social mobility as an outcome. So I'm wondering if we could bring in the problems of racism and sexism here, because then you have large groups that have a lower socioeconomic status than the other group. And I think it's pretty widely agreed by experts that there really isn't a, a difference in innate ability or intelligence between racial groups, for instance. And, and yet you have situations of inequality which I think are presumed to be societally induced or historically induced. And then the question is, how do you overcome the historical legacy, let's say, of slavery in this country or racism or sexism? How do you overcome that without doing some kind of social engineering? In, in the U.S., there's been a real backlash against uh, affirmative action, for instance, as a, as a way to address this. Um, so how do, you, how do you create a situation of an equal playing field when it comes to dealing with these kind of disparities? In some ways, those are quite alarming examples. Those should be easy in some ways, but we're talking about very explicit discrimination. We're talking about very visible forms of advantage and disadvantage. The kind of the recipe for addressing it should be more straightforward than when we're talking about social and economic class where things get more knotty and cultural and harder to identify the form of disadvantage and to correct for it. Though obviously there is the problem that when we certainly when we're talking about race and class are intertwined quite closely. I, th I think gender and, and race are, are a bit different. And even within race, when we're talking about different racial groups and the history and legacies and the component parts of the sub racial subgroups are different in ways that, that make it quite complicated. But gender is really interesting in terms of, on the educational field, the disadvantage, if anything, or the underperformance is male. And then we get into the economy and the underperformance is female. And responding to that and saying, in the first instance, we might think we should think that if ability is equally spread between men and women, then they should be equally likely to be college graduates, to be graduates from top colleges, 
and then they should be equally likely to be high earners and CEOs. And the inequalities go in different directions there, or the educational inequalities, certainly in school and at a high level in terms of college graduation, is women do better than men. And then you get into the economy and men do better than women. And one kind of response to that is to say this perfect social mobility isn't a benchmark in the same way as we maybe we don't believe when push comes to shove that ability is genuinely equally distributed. Maybe we don't believe that preferences or goals are or values are equally shared between men and women. And maybe we don't believe even the kind of the attributes and skill sets are are different. Look, there's a bunch of very naughty empirical questions here, and I'm not going to I'm not giving a position here. I'm just trying to lay out where I think the disagreements, where the where the issues start to come apart a bit. Yeah, and then it gets really contentious if there's even a suggestion that there are actual biological differences. For instance, the between the sexes, Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, when he was still president, suggested that maybe there was a broader statistical distribution for men than women so that the at the very far ends that men would be superior at let's say engineering or something like that and boy he took a lot of flack for that I and mean, there was no real proof anyway of what he was saying but he was just to suggest it was considered really anathema yeah i'm stepping very carefully here and i'm hope i'm, I hope I'm not doing it in a way that is um, that, that there's being overly cautious. But part of the difficulty here is we just don't know. And we might have a decision to make as a society as to whether we just don't we just don't want to answer these questions. We want to take as an article of faith. It is better for us to work under the assumption because opening the door to the alternative assumption or asking these empirical questions unleashes such unpleasant conversations, such unpleasant relationships. But maybe we just want to assume that men and women are equal and similar, and the distribution is identical because entertaining the thought otherwise just leads to too many un- unpleasant uh, outcomes. And that's the gender divide. When we get into the racial divide, that's a whole, that's even worse, right? If we want to, there's all sorts of reasons we wouldn't want to get into that. Yeah, I would think it would be even worse. I think with the gender, assuming equality of of ability has worked out pretty well. It used to be that there were very few women in certain fields like mathematics or philosophy or sciences. In most of those fields, the numbers are trending toward equal. I think engineering is still more male than female. And and I I think even there, I think the assumption is probably not that it's not a difference of ability, but a difference in interests that whether for biological or socialization reasons, women tend to be more socially oriented and, and engineering in some respects might be less less social type of profession. Not completely because you still have teams, but I think the assumption is that it's just not as interesting. But then you have something like chess, for instance, and you have a, a TV series, The Queen's Gambit, and suddenly there's an upsurge of interest among girls for chess. When I was in high school, I was on the, the chess team and at the high school championships, there were, I think, two girls and 98 boys, something like that, approximately. And I think that's changed dramatically in, in recent years. Well, one implication of this might be that, look, there's going to be a bunch of empirical social scientists who are going to want to get into this for good and for ill reasons. But maybe as a society, it is it is better for us to let's, let's assume that there, there aren't differences or let's assume that women are equally competent and capable at these things until we're proven wrong. Give them the opportunity and then see what happens. And the chess case, the STEM case pushes in that direction. 
as I say, a lot of my, my, my instincts are to be worried in the other direction, which is to say women in STEM is in many ways a big success story. Men in caring professions, broadly construed, certainly childcare, some forms of education, allied health professionals. Men can be caring when they're doctors, but, they, but it's hard to find men who want to care as nurses or other forms of, of health care um, and social care. Although even there, I think in nursing, there are men going into nursing, not so many into early child uh, care because the pay is so low. So I'm wondering if we could also talk about education. How big a factor is the quality of instruction versus the social milieu of the student body or the involvement of parents in promoting their own children's educational achievements? So those are two different things. So I think we talked a bit about the uh, uh, family uh, background, but then you also have the milieu factor that if you go to a school with high achieving students, you're likely to want to compete with them and keep up with them. And if you're at a school with a low achievement level, then you might adopt uh, kind of peer social values that education is not that important. I think it's a, a big debate here. I imagine it's probably also in the UK that schools ought to provide equal educations, but can they? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of questions. And, and the first, I guess the first question is, what is it that we're trying to achieve with our education system? And the answer is probably many things at once. And then the question is, how do we balance those things? There's a certain extent. So a person's academic kind of achievement is going to be affected by their general level of intelligence, their social milieu, and the instruction that they receive. And we can go back and forth. There's lots of empirics and contextual stuff about which percentage. I don't think we, we will be able to say with any precision what percentage each of those breaks down at. But let's say that from a policy political perspective, we're interested in the school milieu. We might be interested in the social milieu in terms of things like residential segregation. And, uh, and, and there's a set of discussions there. And we're interested in the instruction that they receive. So... We might think that the first thing we want to do is we want to use educational attainment. Um, and then a question might be, well, who's educational attainment? There, there's a set of trade-offs potentially about do we want to pick out, in, in the US you have gifted and talented schemes. We don't really have that so much here in the, in the UK. We have academically selective schools, although they're quite unfashionable and on the, on, and they were, they were, not abolished, but abolished in many parts of the country and are, are, are still only available in a minority of places. And, and, and what was the reason for the, for the backlash against them? It was seen as socially divisive. I think that the, ex, this, the exam that led to academic selection that's still in place in many places, the, the 11 plus, was seen as traumatic for many people. And I think it was also seen as quite early to make those decisions. So it's a bit of a paradox, in fact, some people like to point out that we have broadly turned our back on academic selection at the age of 11 and even are a little bit squeamish about streaming and setting, although that is still commonplace within schools, at a young age. But when we get to 18, we have an incredibly stratified education system. So a, a little bit of biography. I went to a standard, what in the US you'd call a public school, a state school that was in a, in a relatively affluent area, but still pretty mixed. And the presumption there was, as a relatively kind of academic student, that I would be able to take care of myself to a large extent. And the instruction was focused on the least academic students, but getting them to 
a basic level, making sure that they pass their exams. I'll get my A no matter what. They need to get over the line and get their passes. And if that means that school's a little bit boring and a little bit stultifying for me, then that's a cost worth bearing. And I happened to get into University of Oxford. And one of the things that was most shocking was that equation gets turned on its head. There is nowhere in the public education system in the UK where people get that level of attention and resources compared to Oxbridge anywhere. So at our university system, we, we give the most resources and we hive off the most academically able and invest relatively less to in things like vocational programs, let alone lower tier or less selective universities. And that kind of flips on its head the philosophy that we've been broadly pursuing through the school age. So for even just within academic attainment, there's questions about where do you put your resources. But then on top of that, there's another layer about, actually, we might care about other things besides educational attainment. We might think that it's important for people to be socially integrated. I certainly think a huge part of the value that I got from going to a normal public school was being exposed to people from lots of different walks of life. And I interacted with people when I got to university who were from more affluent backgrounds than me, who had only been to private schools, who basically had no interaction with quote unquote ordinary people. And now I work in Westminster. Now these are, you can trace in terms of the background, many of these are the people who run our country and that seems like it's suboptimal that these people should be estranged from broader society in that way. Yeah, so the, the question is, at what point do you, do you allow stratification to happen? So in the U.S., for instance, college is now considered almost like a right. And people go to college, whether they're academically proficient or not. Whereas I understand that in, in Europe, at least in continental Europe, I don't know if it's the case in the U.K., that you have this kind of matriculation exam, you have to score above a certain score to even go to college. And college is paid for, but it's not paid for the whole population. It's paid for a tiny slice. And so at that point, there is a kind of stratification of society where the, the most academically able, the ones who were able to do well in this test in any case, can go on and, and have potentially higher paid professions than other people who go into more other, other kinds of vocations. It just raises the question of when, when is it okay to, to start selecting in order to really make it a meritocracy at that point? There's been a debate here about entrance exams to colleges as being somehow unfair because it leads to uh, racial disparities, for instance. And so the question, is that a question of ability? Is it a question of preparation? Is it a question of what kind of family background? And what's the best way to, to correct that inequity? For all the differences... I think there's similarities, certainly between the UK and the US, that both have relatively stratified higher education systems. Yeah, public versus private, there's difference. Community college and further education colleges as we have, and more elites and less selective universities. You've got state universities. There, there, there's a lot of kind of complexity there, but broadly, there is a hierarchy just because more people are coming out as college graduates doesn't mean that they're all going to the same institutions. And a thing that is lost between school and higher education 
is that at higher education, we no longer pretend that a function is to of, of the education system is to integrate our societies. And I'm well aware that it's contentious the extent to which schools should do this anyway. And it's particularly contentious in the US, but I think the US is a fascinating example because of the racialized nature of it, Brown versus Board of Topeka, forced busing, all of that sort of stuff. I think the US is a fascinating example of a time and a place where social segregation in the education system was seen as a big political problem and addressed for a period of time before it backslid. And in the UK, and even more so in, I think, I suspect even more so in continental Europe, there's a little bit of concern in pockets of immigrant communities and things about is there, is there segregation? When you can see the, the inequality, it becomes more politically pressing. But the less visible inequality, the, the inequalities of class, we just skate over. So we don't mind so much if poor kids and rich kids get quite different educations and are not integrated to the same extent. And in some, and the US in some ways is worse in this regard because you have a much more unequal school funding system. In England, we have a policy called the pupil premium, whereby if your child is eligible for free school meals, then the school receives an extra payment from the government in order to A, incentivize the, the school to take kids from a disadvantaged background, but B, to recognize that they need more support and care. In many ways, our funding system is, is trying to correct for these disparities. Whereas in the US, because it is geographically spread and because residential segregation is relatively high, because we don't live particularly cheek, cheek by jowl, that is reproduced um, at a school level. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, a big reason why parents choose a particular neighborhood so to live in, because the, that neighborhood has a reportedly or by reputation, a better school. So it, seem, it seems to me that we have competing kind of goals for society. One is to try to provide equal opportunity to the extent possible. But the other is to be able to identify the people who are going to be the best at certain things. And when you get to certain kind of elite professions, for instance, uh, being a, an upper level analyst at a high tech company, you want people that are quite able, but also capable of very hard work and very long hours. And in a way, a student who can get into an elite institution like Oxford in the UK or like the Ivy Leagues here, in a way, they, if they can get in and do well, they've proven that they have those attributes. And a lot of it maybe has to do with the ability to really apply themselves and live up to certain standards. Yeah, and this is where we start to get into that, that un some of these uncomfortable questions around innate intelligence or the distribution of ability start to rear their head again. And I'm, and I'm saying this without any kind of strong view as to what the answer is. Malcolm Gladwell has this analogy that, he, that, he, that I find quite useful about thinking about it, which is he, he distinguishes between whether you think that education is a strong link game or a weak link game. In, in, in a strong link game, then the, the strongest link carry the rest of the, of the parts. So you find the, the best of the best. You, you say that, look, there's a handful of brilliant innovators, of geniuses, there's going to be, who are going to start up the best companies, who are going to make the best vaccines, the best technical breakthroughs, be the best leaders. And if we just make sure that we maximize and squeeze every drop of potential, 
it'll be thousands of people, I, I expect, in the kind of strongest version of this, the hundreds or thousands of people who are there at that extreme end of the talent distribution, then that should be the first goal because everything else can fall into place around that. And then the other extreme view is if you is to say that, look, nobody is ability is essentially randomly distributed and we're not particularly good at uh, identifying it. And therefore, we should be trying to maximize the ability or, or, or make sure that we're providing for people across the ability spectrum, allowing for things like late developers. There's enough talent everywhere that we need to be firing on all cylinders, basically. And that probably means that we can't give as much kind of concerted effort to to the ones at the very extreme end of the distribution. And then equally, we might think that if you think that education is a right, if you think, I, I talk in the paper, we haven't quite got back to this, but I, I talk about this idea of self-realization as an alternative goal, which is that it's not about achievement in some relativist sense. It's not about finding where you are in the distribution. It isn't about, is your contribution to society kind of maximal? It is to say, look, Stuart, you have a certain set of skills and ambitions. And what matters is that you are able to be the best. We give you the best chance of being the best version of yourself. And it doesn't matter if that is transformative of society. It matters. It's, it's about your self-esteem. It's about your ability to thrive and prosper as a, as a human being. And these are ideals that push in different directions in terms of where the resources go, in terms of the stories that we tell ourselves about society. Yeah, it's there, there's tensions and trade-offs here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because actually I was about to launch into the other part of your essay, which is how to get out from under this kind of mindset that everything needs to be, first of all, that everything needs to be equal, but also that we need to do social engineering in order to diminish disparities of income. And there's that whole kind of conundrum of, of trying to do something that is really difficult to do. And so what you're emphasizing is that maybe we should think about ways of, of promoting views that help people to feel better about themselves without having to everything to be competing against other people, that you can be trying to actualize yourself on an individual level. So we tend to reward the educated with money, power, and privilege, and conversely to denigrate the uneducated as ignorant, foolish, and boorish. And these are kind of social messages that I think, as you point out, can lead to the kind of loathing of this of the so-called elite class by the less fortunate and, and also in the other direction as well. And I'm wondering, is this social divide as real as it seems, or is it partly manufactured as a political wedge issue to, to the classism as, as a useful tool by certain politicians? It seems like a really fraught kind of area, but it, it's, it seems to me that it's been emphasized more and more in recent years. I think it is a, it's a latent issue that's been released. And the reason I think that it isn't just politicians whipping it up is because we're seeing similar dynamics across the industrialized world. And maybe that means that the politicians are learning from one another and they're, they're all trying the same tricks. But I'm inclined to say, I think they're tapping into something that was there I frankly am a bit skeptical at politicians' ability to create divides where there isn't some something to work from. I think the crack has to be there, and politicians can either try and try and fill it in and try and patch it up, or they can jam their fingers in there and pull it apart, depending on what they think is politically prudent and pragmatic for them. 
But yeah, the famous quote that goes around in my head is that there's a Donald Trump quote where he says, I love the lesser educated, which was just, as far as I can tell, an incredibly crude, he read that, he read the cross tabs or someone told him the cross tabs and, and said that these people are going for you. But the underlying thing that he's tapped into there, which probably best exemplified in the Arlie Hochschild books, uh, Strangers in Our Own Land, is this idea of there's a bunch of people who are disrespected, a bunch of people who feel that they are not recognized for the contribution that they make, that elites look down on them. And education and, ed- and economic ability is tied into this very deeply. The work of Michael Sandel is the other kind of touch point in this, again, very much in the US context. Again, a lot of this comes out of the Trump realignment and trying to make sense of that theoretically, given the kind of sociological foundations. But we see similar things. So my paper was born out of a very a British context where the Labour Party is trying to win back some traditionally Labour voters generally older, generally lower educated, and perceiving themselves as losers in the economy, although it's complicated in the same way as Trump voters were above average income. There's a lot of people who are economically more secure, but are seen as feel feel themselves as culturally alienated. And Starmer in turn borrowed a lot of his rhetoric from Olaf Scholz, who came to power in, in Germany, on a platform that centred respect. So Starmer keeps saying the word respect. Here's Starmer, the head of our, our, our Labour Party in the UK. Olaf Scholz, the head of the Chancellor of Germany and leader of the Social uh, Democratic Party there, his, a lot of his rhetoric was centred around the importance of respect, the idea that contributions matter, whoever makes them, and that we shouldn't be looking down on those in society. The dustpan matters just as much as the banker and those sorts of lines. It seems to me that this is touching on a real social cultural phenomenon. I think there's enough sociological evidence, there's enough uh, evidence from the political systems around the world um, to suggest that this isn't just the politi- it's just a particular band of politicians whipping up division. So here in the US, we have the myth of the American dream that anybody can make it. And of course, in a capitalist system, not everybody can make it, but anyone supposedly can make it if you just work hard enough. But the question is, what do you do with people who don't come even close to making it, whether through lack of initiative or just plain bad luck or bad circumstances? The question is, how much of a safety net should a society have for the people who are not economic winners? And maybe they fall into without intervention into not just relative poverty, but absolute poverty, where they don't have uh, uh, sufficient access to food, shelter, and medical care. Yeah, it's an interesting framing given the conversation we just had, because a lot of the political pressure, and a lot of the social pressure, as, as I suggested, is not necessarily coming from people in poverty. And the divide here is not necessarily economic. So for a lot of people, the reason why the watchword is respect. Now, you might say that offering poverty wages or living in the indignity of poverty is is no way to show respect. And I think there's an important line of argument there. And there's risks that this agenda gets detached from the kind of material roots of it. But equally, it's important to recognize that money is not just the issue. And certainly handouts are not just the issue. A lot of this is about social esteem. A lot of this is about a sense of 
opportunity. Uh, a lot of this is about status, and that's and that and that's trickier. In some ways, it's it's relatively easy to redistribute money. Uh, we know how to tax people, and we know how to uh, how how to give money away. We maybe don't do it as much as we ought to, but we've the the mechanisms are, are clear enough. I think trying to achieve equality of status is much more challenging. And I think what you're arguing is that status should not be dependent only on income or wealth. That's a kind of societal mistake in a sense, because then you have winners and losers, sometimes big winners and big losers, but even relative losers can feel bad about themselves if that's the whole emphasis. If, you're, if your self-worth is defined by your income, societally, and that's societally a widespread idea, that's really a good recipe for unhappiness. And I, I would think that the more unhappy societies are the ones that emphasize money-making above all else. I'll start with the skeptical point of view. So the skeptical point of view is that humans, like lots of creatures, you can go to biology, you can look at, you, you can look at all sorts of species, you can say that we are hierarchical organizations, that status is a universal, that whatever we do will just recreate status. We'll say that even if we're more equal on money, it'll be about whether you've read the right books or seen the right films or have the, we'll reproduce it on the basis of looks. We, there's a load of markers we can use to be status markers. And that some people might say that this is just an impossible dream that we might achieve anything approaching equality of status. I think my first response to that would be to say that I think people in rich democracies underestimate the basic level of equality of status that has been achieved in a way that would make us our societies unrecognizable to Victorian societies and even to many societies in the world today. I think if you look at gated communities in some parts of Africa or South America, if you look at caste and income stratified uh, countries like India, I think there is a very real sense that there, is, there isn't a, anything in common between the people at the top of those societies and the bottom of the societies. They do not see each other as equals on any fundamental level. And there are things that we take for granted and that you don't notice until they're not there. The little things like you say please and thank you, the way that you speak to someone there are basic norms of politeness that everybody is due. The way we address people, addressing people by their first names. And beyond that, the material things, the, the, the practical things of everybody gets a vote, everybody gets an equal say. These are hard-won things that we take for granted and give me a bit of optimism that we can expand that basic level of dignity and respect that everybody and status that everybody in society gets. The other point that I would say is even if we can achieve equality of status, there is a concept of which is instead of we can have if we have multiple hierarchies and they're overlapping and it isn't the same people who are winning every time. If the beautiful people are not the same people as the rich people, are not the same people as the smart people, are not the same as the cultured people, if our economic capital, cultural capital, social capital are not accruing and concentrated in the same people, then that makes me a little bit more comfortable than a society. And I think that helps people have the bases of self-respect a bit better than a society in which 
it is the same people on top and the ones on the bottom have nothing to cling to. Yeah, it's also interesting to look at communitarian values depending on, on economic and social class. I mean, I happen to live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, not far from MIT uh, in my 20s, and it was a relatively poor part of Cambridge, mostly West Indian. And everyone seemed to be, if not working poor, certainly lower middle class. And, and there was a kind of solidarity, it seemed to me, that the, these weren't the richest of the rich. Other parts of Cambridge have mansions. And these were pretty crowded, triple-decker houses with a different family in each floor, that sort of thing. And there was a, a sense of caring and community. I felt like everyone knew who I was and everyone knew who everyone else was. And there were kind of people had, had people's backs. In, in the richer communities, there tends to be more, I think, isolation from each other and whether it's behind a gate or behind their own personal gate. So there are values that maybe we can look at as being a different kind of inequality of community that where the very rich may be at a disadvantage. I think there's definitely something to that. I'm a little bit cautious because it sounds like a nice story and I wonder if it's a, a bit of a sour grape situation or a bit of a, or conversely, a way of justifying that the poor are really rich. But I think in some context, in certain contexts, in certain, in certain places and times is almost certainly true. I'm sure there's, there's some reality to that. Yeah, and one value that we didn't talk about is, in addition to communal values, is just uh, quality of, of relationships. And I think it's pretty well accepted, at least among psychologists, that it's the quality of relationships that makes for whether how much happiness you have. That as long as you have a kind of a, at least a minimal level of, of security, so that you're not in any kind of close to absolute poverty and, you, and you, you're not living paycheck to paycheck, that the, the, by far the, the biggest uh, factor in uh, ha leading a happy life is to feel loved and to have loving relationships. And that more and more money doesn't really help. Um, yes. And I don't have, that's a whole empirical social scientific debate about does, what's the relationship between money at, at, at high incomes and, and, and happiness. But what is pretty well established is that even within rich societies, there is an income gradient in happiness. The richer people getting richer doesn't make them happier, but the richer people are almost, are, are by and large happier than the poorer people on average. And partly that gets into these things, these issues around status, as we say. That's a, that, that's a fundamental driver here, I think. And I think that's probably as significant as the income itself is the, what that tells you about your position in society, about the respect that you feel you get and the way that you feel about your own life. So Avik, I'm wondering with the last uh, several minutes here, we could talk about what policy recommendations you would have. From your essay, it sounded like it was important to not just emphasize social mobility, but to emphasize other concepts as well, uh, that too much emphasis on social mobility in a, in a paradoxical way leads to unhappiness, which isn't to say that it shouldn't be attempted, but it shouldn't be the only value, I, I, if I'm reading your essay correctly. I think the key, yeah, the, the key argument is that social mobility is fundamentally premised on hierarchy. It's integral to it. So if you go back to the definition I gave you, if, if anyone can still remember however long ago we were, my original kind of definition of social mobility is how many people move from the bottom to the top and how many people move from the top to the bottom. We can talk about that in terms of income, in terms of 
occupational status, whatever, however you want to define top and bottom. But intrinsic to it, inherent to it, is the idea of a hierarchy. And if we're reproducing hierarchy, that is a recipe for these sort of resentments and divisions. If you're going to reproduce a hierarchy, you still have to answer the question, okay, so what happens to the people on the bottom? Whether or not they're deserving or undeserving, whether or not they're meritorious or non-meritorious, there's still going to be that story. And, And to some extent, Stuart, as you suggested, that is, how do we help people in poverty? How big of a safety net do we have? How much is your economic precarity related to your economic success or your success in the labor markets but there's also questions about what other narratives do we have how else are we promoting who we valorize in society what are we training young people to do through the education system to go back to the thing i said about is the purpose of schools to find the best people put rocket boosters under them and make sure they get to the top or is it to integrate society, make sure that people from different backgrounds understand each other, to make sure that the CEO remembers the kids he went to school with or that or she went to school with who are plumbers and welders or unemployed or whatever it happens to be, and trying to keep the bonds of the society together and make sure that they, even though it'll be unmistakable in that circumstances that they have succeeded in some ways that their peers haven't, to make sure that they recognize that there are important ways in which they are no better than anybody else. And that's the difficult needle to thread because that is a social and cultural thing. It's very difficult. As a think tanker, I always want to say, what's the bill you need to pass? What's the policy you need to make? What do you put in the manifesto? And this is one where it is as much about how do you frame the speech? What are you saying to people? How are you interacting with them? What story are you telling about the society we live in? So are we talking about more of a social movement versus social legislation? I think it's both. And I think it's always going to be hollow if you don't say, here's what we're doing in terms of in policy terms. But I think it's it might be things like, for example, investment in adult education. It might be things like vocational education, particularly. It is emphasizing that we're trying to create opportunities for all. And it is trying to emphasize that if you don't make the most of those opportunities, that doesn't undermine your worth as a citizen and that you're valued anyway and that we can all contribute to society in different ways and trying to flesh out the ways and the different ways in which people are are contributors even if they're not winners in the economic game okay so you would maybe put more funding into vocational training what other investments can be made on a whether it's federal or state or local governments I think as we've said in the course of this conversation, I think segregation is a key kind of latent concept here. I think a lot of these things happen, a lot of the divides arise, a lot of the the misunderstandings and demonization occurs when we're talking about alien others, when you don't when you don't know anyone who went to an elite school and who has uh, these positions of power and privilege and they don't know you. Um so I think addressing segregation, and I think segregation, the, the two obvious places to, to address segregation are A, in our schools, and B, in our um, housing markets. And those two things obviously interact in important ways, but it is, how do we zone kids for school? How are there ways of integrating them, lotteries, busing, things like that? 
once kids are separated into schools, are school are school districts as impermeable as they are? I, I don't know so much about the US system, but should schools within a school district be better integrated? Should there be more integration across school districts? And then within residency, within, within residential segregation, there's things like vouchers, moving to opportunity, and then beyond that, a whole range of schemes about how we might integrate neighborhoods as well. Yeah, I, I feel like these kinds of things have been tried in the U.S. And there's a uh, acronym NIMBY, not in my backyard. So I, I think that's applied often to liberals who, who are advocating for these kinds of integration, except when it happens to them, for instance. The, the, the busing uh, controversy in Boston that happened several decades ago, it was tremendous pushback against it. And I don't know how much progress has been made, I guess some, but it, it seems that people want to self-segregate often, at least the people in the privileged classes do, that's for sure. And I think that's where a lot of the political leadership has to come. It's not a pleasant thing to say, but if you are a receptacle for people's values, if you are supposed to stand for something, then you should be calling out people, especially people on your own side, people who might be more progressive and who are supposed to believe in these things for the role that they play in hoarding opportunity and segregating society and calling out the hypocrisies. I think that's those are fights that if you're a genuine, genuinely progressive politician, you have to take on. But I'm not going to pretend that this is easy. One of the most striking studies that I read was a study in Denmark. This is where people are supposed to be progressive. This is where people are supposed to be socially conscious. And it looked at a scheme that certain councils in Denmark did where they they tried to gerrymander school zones so that the schools would be more balanced in terms of their intake. What the researchers found was that it worked up to a point but that if there was too big a change in the school's composition too quickly, as in if a predominantly middle-class school brought in too many working-class kids too quickly, then you got a, uh, a cycle of flight. A bunch of parents would pull their kids out. They'd go private. They'd find other ways, and it would be it would undermine it. Look, I don't, I, I can't tell you the exact proportion or the exact number of kids that you can integrate and how hard you can push before you you trigger the backlash. But yeah, these are these are delicate and different difficult things. But I think in the first instance, we need to acknowledge that this is a problem, that it's a problem beyond the more visible inequalities of gender and race, and that kind of the class inequalities and the class segregation matters too, and that these have deep rooted political implications for our societies. And I think it's safe to say that this issue will not disappear right away. <laughs> We're going to be working on this probably 200 years from now, but hopefully we'll have made at least some progress. Anyway, unfortunately, we're out of time. So Avik Bhattacharya, the interim director of the Social Market Foundation, a nonpartisan think tank based in the UK, who last year published an essay entitled Social Mobility and Its Critics. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thanks, Stuart. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.